I just had a really weird moment. I got here this morning and thought, I totally forgot my Bible, and it's not here where I usually leave it, and it's not at home where I usually leave it, so it must be lost. So I ducked into one of our pews, only to find it's in the other, other place that I always leave it. So, all right. This is a good morning. You can tell I'm pretty easily entertained, easily amused. How are you doing today? Yeah, I can tell there's some of you closet riders and some of you not so closet riders in the in the crowd. Glenn, thank you for refraining from whooping. <laughs> it was a painful um, game for me last week, not so much because I really care about the outcome of the CFL ever, uh, but it was painful because I just happened to bet on the wrong team. Any any game I go to, I just not bet like money wise, but just you know my pride. And uh, it's, it hurts that much more when it's with your brother, and he wins, and everybody on Facebook that you've smack-talked wins. So anyway, this morning I hope you guys win, okay? <laughs> uh, I was a child, had a different perspective on worship, as children often do, uh, came to service with their parents sat through the singing and the preaching and the praying and the Lord's Supper, and at the end of it all says, you know, the music wasn't bad, but the commercial was a little long. <laughs> I hope the commercial's not too long today, and I hope it's not really a commercial at all, quite frankly. Because this morning we're going to talk about worship. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And as you hear these words, I suspect they're going to be more than a little familiar to you. But I invite you to hear them again anyway. Paul writes in Romans 12, starting in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You've probably heard this sermon before. Uh, some of you I know have heard the sermon before because you were out there in 2002 when I preached this exact same text <laughs> from this exact same place. Um, and so I know you've heard the sermon before. It's a familiar text from a familiar author with a familiar lesson. You've probably heard that therefore is not an insignificant way for Paul to start this text. Anytime I see that, I have to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. Sorry, that didn't come off quite right, did it? I tried. What's the therefore? Therefore, do you get it? Okay, work with me. It's early. We started 10 minutes early. Um, it highlights the importance of connecting what Paul's about to say to everything that he's come before. And what Paul has said before, some have said is like the ultimate in Paul's theology. It signals a major hinge point in the whole book where Paul turns from his theological exposition and explanation to his ethical instruction and exhortation. And Paul doesn't want you to lose the flow. He doesn't want you to lose the fact that all the theology that most of us have possibly fallen asleep reading... We just don't get it, Paul. Would you please get to the point? He's about to get to the point, but he can't do that if you disconnect it from what's come before. 
And so Paul, in short, has written that those who are without God, the Gentiles, are completely without hope. They are deluded and they are deceived. They are debased in their understanding of God. They are debased in their worship and in their ethics. They are completely without hope, Paul writes. Paul has, in short, written that those who think they have God, the Jews, are likewise without hope. Their overconfidence in their possession of the law and the prophets, their smug confidence that they and they alone have interpreted and applied it correctly, they too are deluded and deceived, Paul says, in their understanding of God, in their worship, and in their ethics. It's a painful place to come when Paul aims his guns not just at those that we think, yeah, yeah, nah, yeah, all those guys, without hope. And Paul says, yeah, yeah, you guys, without hope. And that, Paul says, is exactly the place where we find hope. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, Paul writes in this magnificent part of Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The good news is that right relationship with God and right relationship with other people comes not through you having to pile up good work on good work on good work. It's not through your own learned understanding. Instead, hope, salvation comes through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And this salvation has worked in you, Paul will continue to write, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who empowers all who submit themselves to God to do God's will, to live holy lives that are, in fact, pleasing to God. That's my one-and-a-half-minute digest of Romans. (laughs) Everything Paul has just written about the state of humankind and our hopelessness and this only salvation that's available in faith in Jesus He has to depend on that in what he's about to write. Therefore, Paul writes. Because everything he's about to say depends on us having heard about the God's mercies. Therefore, in view of God's mercies. You've probably heard that when Paul calls us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, he's calling on a very rich and familiar cultic language, at least to some in the first century, probably to most, quite frankly. Temple worship is something we don't really get because it's not really common to go uh, raise a herd, first of all, in a city. And it's not very common to pick one of those herd and take it to a temple and slay it because it is an act of worship. That's just not what we do today. But the people that Paul was writing to would have gotten that, Jew and Gentile alike. It conjures images, at least for the Jew, of the tabernacle, of the temple, of priestly garments and of priests. It draws us to these noisy scenes of worshipers that are slaughtering the animal that they brought from their herd or their flocks, of the priests dipping their hands into the blood to sprinkle it on the people, to splash it on the sides of the altar, of taking all the parts of that animal and preparing them properly and placing them on there and burning it. This is the kind of image that Paul is conjuring up when he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Worshippers who came to mourn their sins, to atone for their sins, tended to their animals. They selected an unblemished one to worship and they brought it to the temple. And Paul, as he often does, will subvert our religious imagination because he knows that 
with Jesus, we are no longer required to bring animal sacrifices. And so instead, he says, the sacrifice I urge you to bring in view of God's mercies is the one attached to your own two feet. He subverts our religious imagination where we think we can disconnect the offering from us. You've probably heard that before. You may or may not have heard that when Paul says, this is your spiritual act of worship, he's presenting a counterpoint to the misguided worship of the world way back in chapter 1. I know it's hard to remember 12 chapters ago, and so I'm going to invite you to go back there for just a moment. Take a look at Romans chapter 1, and in particular, um, it's it's a small echo, but it's an important echo in verse 25. The word here for spiritual, this is your spiritual act of worship, Paul says, is a difficult word to translate because it doesn't just mean spiritual. As a matter of fact, it could mean reasonable or rational, which seems to fly completely in the face of spiritual in some ways. Ancient philosophers loved this word. They loved to use this word to describe what marked people apart from animals. They were spiritual, reasonable, rational. That word. This is one of the things that set us apart from animals. It's one of the things that identified us with the gods. We shared something in common with the gods that animals didn't. Reason. And so worship that is spiritual, or as per the philosophers, that is rational, is worship that's fitting and appropriate to our station in this life. For first century Jews, it indicated the proper mental and spiritual state to be in as they brought a sacrifice. If that sacrifice were to be accepted. Paul roundly criticizes in Romans chapter 1 the world for exchanging the truth. This is chapter 1 verse 25. For exchanging the truth of God for a lie. For worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. Sounds irrational, doesn't it? That I would worship things that were created kind of like I was created. That I would form out of wood. Isaiah has a brilliant uh, text where he says, are you guys really that dumb? You take this chunk of wood and you split it in half. And with half of it, you throw it in your fire to cook your food. And the other half, you carve into a shape and you worship it. It's the goofiness of the world that worships the created things. And so Paul roundly criticizes them for that in chapter 1. And he calls that back up in chapter 12 because surely us Christians need to have a response to that. If it's sheer idiocy to worship created things, then surely we need something else, namely worshiping the creator to fill that gap. So Paul invites us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, your spiritual, reasonable, rational worship. This is the answer to the deluded worship of the world that chases after things and stuff. Offer yourself to God. You may or may not have heard that Paul's call to offer your bodies rings a bell with his earlier call to not offer any part of your body to sin, but rather offer yourselves to God. Again, Paul is picking up on his theology and he's running with it forward into ethical exhortation, into telling us how we ought to live. Having proclaimed that God's grace can't be out-sinned, and what a good piece of news that is, Paul addresses a misguided question. So, so that means, Paul, that means if I can't out-sin God's grace, well, well, give me a minute, just give me a minute. That means I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want, and it's all good. And if you're Paul, you would probably say something less polite than I'm going to say, which is by no means. Absolutely not. Are you insane? Have you missed what I've just said? He says it a little bit shorter than that. 
Jesus didn't die and forgive our sins so that we can go on living the way that we've always lived, so that we can go on sinning, so that we can continue being slaves to this taskmaster. Jesus died so that we can be free from that, Paul says. And instead, we can choose to submit ourselves to a good and kind and gracious master, the Lord our God. Jesus died so we could choose righteousness, not so we could choose to not choose righteousness. So Paul picks up this major theme of the gospel. Once you've died to sin, you can't be slave to it anymore. Once you've died to sin, it's not your master anymore. You have a new master. And so in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul writes this. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. Does that sound familiar? We just read that. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Offer yourselves to God, holy and pleasing. Paul said this before. It's no surprise to us. For sin shall no longer be your master, verse 14, because you are not under law, but under grace. He says it again in, verses, in verse 19. I'm, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. Within the, the sacrificial, the cultic, imaginative world, Paul speaks of the radical transposition we've experienced in Jesus. We are no longer sin-filled, sin-beholden Adam people, but spirit-filled, grace-beholden Christ people. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We're no longer beholden to the sin-filled way of life. You've probably heard that when Paul says, then we will be able to prove God's will. He means that when we've offered ourselves as living sacrifices, then we'll understand what God's will is because we will have lived it. It's a kind of trial and error. When Paul writes in Romans 12, uh, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing and perfect will. It's a trial and error. It's, it's a proof is in the pudding kind of statement. Paul could have chosen at least one of two different words here. He could have used a word that suggests that when you test uh, whatever it is that you're testing, on the other side, you think it's probably going to fail. But he chooses the word instead that means when you test what you're testing, it's probably going to be proved true. And here, Paul says, when you live it, when you do it, the will of God is going to become clear as you live it. Not when you think about it more, but when you start doing the bits that you know. One author says it eloquently. says the outworking and test of inward renewal is ethically responsible conduct. The capacity of forming the correct Christian ethical judgment at each given moment. It means it becomes our gut instinct that we've for so long given ourselves over to God and his righteousness. We don't think about it anymore. We just do it. You've probably heard this sermon before. A sacrifice of total and complete obedience is the only proper and fitting response to God's world-changing mercies that were revealed, proclaimed, and made effective in Jesus. But I can't end this sermon in good conscience until I've asked at least one crucial question about worship.
I think there's a host of questions we can ask. The two that most readily jump to my mind are, did you like it? And what did you get out of it? Have you asked that before? Be honest. Any other sinners like me in the room? I'm the only one. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate that. I've asked that before. I think they're the wrong questions. Did you like it? And what did you get from it? Are questions that are drawn from customer satisfaction surveys, wouldn't you say? Was the product good? Did you like the experience? How could we tweak it for you so that you might come back and have that experience again? It's not drawn from Scripture. These questions turn our hearts and minds. If we continue to ask them, they will shape us. They continue, uh, they, they will shape our hearts and minds into the most biased of applause meters. Rooted in our own self-absorbed likes and dislikes, which is going to shift the foundation of worship from adoration and proclamation of God to whether or not I got a spiritual buzz. One of these is more substantive than the other. Instead of transforming us into the sacrificial likeness of Christ, this kind of worship, by these kinds of questions, turn us into childish, church-going critics that cry, entertain me. I've got three kids. They do that all the time. Can I play on your iPhone? No. What happens to them? When you say no. <laughs> or they wait five minutes, they ask you again. These questions, they rot our hearts. It's a backward move in our faith to ask these kinds of questions. They turn us into perpetually dissatisfied consumers. I think the crucial question instead is this. What do you bring? I think this is the question that Paul asks. What do you bring? I'll admit it. Scripture doesn't ask that exactly word for word. But I think it's on target with Scripture. Temple worshipers never came to the temple with empty hands. They always brought a gift. They brought a payment. They brought a sacrifice. Uh, some fruit. Some grain. A couple of small birds. A lamb or a bull. Whenever they came to the temple to worship, they brought something with them. Sometimes it was big. Sometimes it was something small. But they never came empty-handed. Full hands symbolized a full heart. And relinquishing that sacrifice signified your honor and adoration and appreciation of God. I think it's crucial that we change our question. But even in a society where worshipers brought something tangible to the temple, to sacrifice, they were still able to corrupt and game the system. The prophets voiced God's displeasure at what had happened to the sacrificial system. He writes this in Amos through the voice of the prophets. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. What a profound reversal of these aromatic offerings that were burned on the altar that were pleasing to God or supposed to be. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, God says. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But why? Why is God so deeply displeased? Aren't they bringing something? Aren't they sacrificing something? Isn't that what God asked for? Just a couple verses earlier, he says to them, this is why you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, 
you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. They, uh, there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Can you hear what God is upset with? They're bringing sacrifices out of their abundant wealth that's built on the back of them abusing the poor. There's a substantial disconnect between the offering to a God of mercy and grace and love and life while killing people over here. And this disconnect is what God abhors, hates, despises, and can't stand. And that's why he uses such strong language. Clearly, the crucial question, what do you bring? Includes what's in your hands. But it's also what's in your heart. Wouldn't you agree? It's not just what you put into the collection basket. It's not just the number of pews that you buy for the church. It's not just the time you put in sweeping the steps of the church. Or you pick pick whatever sacrifice it is you want. It's not just what's in your hands. It's what's in your heart that God wants. And what's in your heart is played out every day of the week. As you go to work, as you raise your kids, as you play, as you drive. It's what happens both inside and outside this auditorium. It's what happens on and off the church's property. It's what happens both with and without God's people. That is worship. And that's what comes out of here. This is why Jesus butted heads with the Pharisees. And the reason I want to mention this is so you don't think the prophets were out to lunch and Jesus was out of step with them. When the Pharisees took a jab at Jesus because his disciples didn't wash their hands in the right way at the right time for the right purpose, according to the tradition of the elders, Jesus jabs back. Isaiah was right, Jesus says, when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. But Jesus won't leave it there. He is really going to stick it to them. He doesn't just quote scripture. He says, by the way, you've let go of the commands of God for the traditions of men. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside these commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother will be put to death. Those are pretty clear commands. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, a gift to God or devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or their mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many things like that. It's really quite interesting to me. That the Pharisees had managed to disconnect worshiping God, a sacred spiritual act, from obeying God, a sacred embodied act. So they didn't have to do the gritty work. These people didn't. Here's my retirement savings, and it is korban. I have devoted it to God. I can't possibly honor my parents with it, for that would be stealing from God. Can you hear it? That's the argument the Pharisees are making. They've completely disconnected worshiping God from obeying God so they didn't have to do the gritty work of loving their parents with their pocketbooks and with their time, their parents who had birthed and raised them. This is precisely what Paul is after in Romans 12. Because of Jesus, worshiping God doesn't require burnt offerings. It doesn't mean that we tend our herds and our flocks and we bring them and we slay them on the altar. 
but it requires a sacrifice that is fitting of that sacrifice. In short, you, yourself, your whole self. When we come to worship, the crucial question is what do you bring? As you hold that question, what do you bring gently in your hands? I invite you to consider a confession of mine and a couple blessings that come attached to it, lest you think it's all work, all pain, no joy, no gain. On a practical level, as a paid staff, I have little choice of whether I bring something or not bring something. It's what the church pays me to do when I show up here on a Sunday morning, is it not? Prepare for and lead us from where we are to a place where we can give our attention to God in prayer and in song and in the Lord's Supper and in Scripture. It's just a fact. But I confess to you today that I'm not always a bringer of my heart. Sometimes I get distracted with our sound system and our audiovisual Stuff that happens back there, and I don't blame it on the good people that operate it. Crackling speakers and choppy videos. Sometimes I get distracted with the music, whether or not the praise team is off beat or off key, whether the church is or is not engaging in a particular song, if I've let it too high or too low, too fast, or maybe with the wrong words. Sometimes I get distracted with you. I get distracted with thinking about what you think about me and what I'm doing here. I get distracted. When I come to worship. And I'll suggest to you today that you're not always a very focused bringer of your heart. Sometimes you get distracted when babies cry or run around. (laughs) Or the cry of someone else's baby or the latecomers shuffling in as discreetly as they can. You get distracted by the bulletin. It's a great thing to read when we preach, apparently. Sometimes you get distracted with your cell phones while we sing. And it kind of breaks my heart. But that's not to say that all those other things I mentioned about me don't also break my heart. We're distracted people. And our hearts aren't always here. But here's the blessing. I think this is one of the crucial blessings Paul offers us today. Paul doesn't say if. Paul doesn't say, offer yourself if you've had a good week, an on week, a moral week, an ethical week. Paul doesn't say, offer yourself if you're spiritually mature. And Paul does not say, offer yourself if you have it all together. Paul just says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. His admonition and exhortation is an encouragement and grace. Therefore, Paul writes, because of God's mercies, not because of what you've done. Can you hear it? Not because of who you are. Because of God's mercies. Give yourself to the one who is merciful. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? You can come as yourself. You can come as your mad self. Your happy self. Your broken self. Your helping others to heal self. You can come however. If you choose to live in response to God's grace. You are a living sacrifice. Made holy and pleasing to God. By Jesus blood. And not by your effort. 
All that God asks is that you crawl back on the altar. If I understand Paul right, God doesn't want a made-up or make-up version of you. He just wants you. And I think that's a blessing. I think another blessing is that since God is the one to whom I offer the sacrifice, I only have one master, which I also think is a rich blessing. This is a great reminder when other people demand sacrifice from you. You don't have to say yes just because they demanded it. You don't even have to do that if it's your boss. Probably going to get myself in trouble somewhere along the line, but you'd send them to me, I'll chat. Because you've already offered yourself to the one who offered himself wholly for you. There's no more of you left to give because you've already given it away. In light of a whole self demand from the Savior, any other demands pale by comparison. It's also a rich blessing to know that I have one master when I'm dissatisfied or cranky about something that's going on in our worship services. Because I'm not here to tend to you or your worship. I'm here to tend to mine. If there's three parts in making disciples, God's part and my part and your part, there's only one of the three that I can handle. And I'll give you a suggestion. It's not God's part and it's not your part. And so as I reflect on who is the master and who is the servant, I can tend to me and what's in here. And I can let what's going on out there go. All I can do is tend to the sacrifice that I'm offering, that I bring. I can only tend to my attitude. What do you bring is a liberating question. It's a question that Matt Redmond's church asked uh, a while ago, kind of the late 1990s. Matt's home church sole survivor in Watford, England, was a little apathetic, and so the preacher decided there's something missing. He made a pretty bold move. He decided to get rid of the sound system, get rid of the band, and just gather together with their voices. Now, us from the acapella tradition think, oh, that's good. We've done that for years. We could handle that. But for a church that was so dependent on a very talented musician like Matt Redmond, it's huge. His point was that we'd lost our way in worship, Matt Redmond writes, and the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away. Reminding his church family to be producers and worship and not just consumers. The, the pastor, Mike Pilavachi, asked, When you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? And initially, it led to some embarrassing silence. I think it would be fascinating if we showed up here one morning and said, There's no order. What would you bring? Let's do that together. That's what they were doing. But eventually, people broke out into a cappella songs. Out of this time, Matt went home shortly after it had started and wrote these down in a journal. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. That is what Paul says this morning. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
Don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This morning, we're going to forego journaling, and so I invite the worship band to come forward and uh, to lead us in a last song. I invite you to write down one question in your journal this week and ponder it. What do you bring?